Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're going to be uh, studying and reading the fourth Psalm, Psalm 4, a Psalm of David. And we're returning, and we will continue to return periodically to the Psalms. I think there's much good, rich food for us to be found here. We've already studied about 30, 35 of them. And in the coming weeks of this summer, we'll be looking at some more before beginning our study of Luke's gospel after Labor Day. That's the plan for the coming weeks. So let's begin by reading Psalm 4 in its entirety, all eight verses. Psalm 4, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Salah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Lord God, As we turn to your word, as we turn to this song that you've given to your people for our instruction, we pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, that you would conform us to the image of your son, but you would show us the hope and the confidence we can have in an uncertain and fearful world, that you would guard us from anxiety and fear and give us the sleep, the confident sleep of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. To be clear, not sleeping now. (laughs) Um, The Psalms are one of my favorite books in the Bible because the Psalms are unique. Now, in all of Scripture, God speaks to his people. All of Scripture has God speaking to us. But uniquely in the Psalms, God speaks to us by allowing us to watch and listen as spirit-filled men and women speak to God. The Psalms are songs, godly people, prayers, godly people pray to God. And so by God giving us over 150, there's 150 songs in the book of Psalms, and there are other Psalms scattered throughout the scriptures as well, God has shown us how we are to approach him in the various times of our emotional life. If if Paul, in many respects, is the, the... the clearest condensation of the theology of the cross and the theology of the gospel. The the book of Psalms shows us the the panoply, the wide range of the emotional life of God's people. Um, You you may think that to be a Christian is to always have on a smile, to always be saying things are wonderful, and then you read the Psalms and you realize that a third to half of them express deep lament. I take great comfort from that because it, it tells me that the Bible is a realistic book. God expects his people to deal with suffering. God expects sorrow, discouragement, and longing to be a very large part of our life. Otherwise, why would he give us so many songs to sing to him expressing that sorrow? 
Bible's a very realistic book. If you think being a Christian is all about putting on a bold front and putting on a nice smile all the time and just being happy all the time, the Psalms correct that understanding. The Psalms understand that the life of faith can be a life of grieving, a life of crying out, a life of saying, how long, O Lord? In this song in particular, David, its author, shows us how godly people deal with desire and sorrow and anxiety contrasted with the way the wicked and unbelieving do. And, and this psalm shows us how to, how to get a good night's sleep, as it were. Sleep is a, is a good measure of one's peace, a good measure of one's anxiety. And so David twice, I don't know if you mentioned, noticed it, twice in this psalm references sleep, both in verse 8 and in verse 4. And David, even though this psalm begins in anguish, begins in request, ends in confident trust. And so I think that's important for us to, to learn from this because anxiety, fear, and sleeplessness is a, is a big problem. Sleeplessness is just a symptom of our trust, confidence, and anxiety. I was just doing a little bit of research. Um, apparently, 40 million adults in the United States, age 18 and older, or 18% of the problem, are diagnosed with some form of anxiety disorder or sleepless disorder. It's the most single common mental illness in the U.S. Anxiety disorders cost the U.S. more than $42 billion a year in the various treatments. This is a big issue. This psalm shows us how Christians, the people of the Lord, can deal with, can get a good night's sleep in the face of desire. Notice how the psalm begins and ends. It begins with David pouring out his heart. Answer me! Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. He is in need. He is, he is filled with longing for something. He is, he is, his, his heart is being poured out, and yet notice how it ends. In peace. I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, I want to learn how to do that. I want to learn how to, how to walk my heart and my mind through that. This is a Psalm 4 of the calm assurance of a faithful heart. The calm assurance of a faithful heart. Traditionally, this is known as an evening psalm. And next week, we'll look at Psalm 5, which is traditionally known as a morning psalm. You'll see Psalm 5. Just look ahead a little bit. Verse 3. O Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So here's an evening psalm. Next week, a morning psalm. And God's word equips God's people in all of our circumstances to, to worship him and act faithfully. Now David, we'll dive in here with point number one, verse one. David's concern. David's concern. We don't know exactly what it is he needs. Um, We get some clues. It's possible if this psalm is a continuation of the theme begun in Psalm 3, and some uh, interpreters believe it is, that the superscription in verse of Psalm 3 is this is of when David fled from Absalom, his son. If you remember, Absalom, his son, mounted a coup that for a time was successful. David fled Jerusalem. It's possible that Psalm 4, there's some linguistic connections between 3 and 4. That's possible. That might be the distress David has in mind. It's also possible that the distress David is crying out for is economic. There may be a famine in the land. The the clue for that is verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than when they have their grain and wine bound. It's possible. But I think that God has given us this psalm to his people because it's, it's open-ended. 
There's so many things that we can be anxious for. There are so many things in this world that, that we can be fearful of. There are so many times and places that God's people ought to cry out to God, hear me, help, deliver me. And so this psalm is open-ended. David knew what he was writing about, what his concern was, and then this psalm is added to the scriptures for all of God's people so that all of us, with any of our anxiety, with any of our fear, with any of our sorrows, have a pattern, have a roadmap of how do I in my anxiousness, how do I in my need, how do I in my fear approach God? Perhaps you know the feeling of sleeplessness, of lying awake at night. Now, if you have children, I'm pretty sure last night did that for you in a different way. Did you guys hear the thunderstorm that went through last night? Right around midnight, loud cracklings of thunder, and, and very quickly, four children are in my bed. Um, one of them was really sneaky. Like we, we, we expelled the others, and we hadn't realized that one of them had snuck in at the end of the bed until Serena says, Is, are those, that your feet? No, it's, it's one of my kids. But So there's, there's sleeplessness that just, that just comes from life, but there's also the sleeplessness of having an uneasy heart. And, and David's going to instruct us what to do. I like to think of David as he's preparing to lie down for sleep. He's got concerns on his mind. Perhaps it's the concerns of, of being a deposed king. Perhaps it's the, the concerns of being the king of a land in famine. Who knows what it is? And he's crying out to God. And that's the first thing we get is God wants us to come to him with our concerns. Nothing too menial, nothing too small, nothing too great. In fact, Philippians 4, 6 tells us that we're to be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So David's concern, and we see that verse 1, is he states it twice. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And then at the end, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And so point A, we see that David pleads for present grace. Present grace. Grace is that which David does not have a right to claim. That which he doesn't deserve. He's not demanding you owe it to me, God. Whatever it is he's asking for is a grace. It's unmerited Consequently, David does not argue on his character. David doesn't say, Lord, look at all the things I've done for you. Look at all the, the, the good deeds that I've done. Rather, he, he pleads to God my, of my righteousness to be gracious to him and to give him what he needs. God owes us nothing. It's one of the first things we understand as Christians. We don't approach God on works. We approach God on grace. The only thing you and I have a right to is immediate judgment. Justice, a just claim, the only just claim we have from God is to be damned now. Anything other than that is grace. We don't earn God's favor. You certainly don't merit God's favor by gathering here this morning. You're not scoring up chips for yourself to be used later. We're coming to receive. We're coming to receive grace. And what we need is God's grace. David cries out, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And one of the things I want you to see is a confidence in God and a confidence that will let you, where this psalm ends, sleep soundly, does not conflict with really pouring your heart out. It's not as though as those people who trust God don't cry out in prayer. David cries out, answer me. Be gracious to me. Hear me. He labors in prayer, and then at the end of the psalm, he's, he's going to sleep soundly. 
A confidence in God does not somehow mean that we are not laboring in prayer. David pleads for present grace. But notice sandwiched in between the requests, he, point B, pleads from past mercies. Again, we've got to learn how to reason with God. The scriptures teach us how to approach God. And David, again, is not pleading on anything he's done, any merit in him. Rather, he pleads God's past mercies. It's an interesting way. What he's saying is basically, God, I'm coming to you to do those things that I know you do, and I know you do them because you've done them to me before. It's, it's like a child going to a parent where every other time the child has asked for help, the parent has given help. Every other time the child has asked for food, the parent has given food. And based on that track record, the child boldly, confidently, eagerly asks for help. You have given me relief when I was in distress. He's pleading God's past mercies back to him. One of the reasons God has been merciful to us is to give us boldness in asking for the things we need now, precisely because God has met your needs, precisely because God, a time and time and again, has given you those things you need. Be bold in going before his throne. Be bold in coming with your requests. Be confident. He comes to God with eager request for grace, and he is... He pleads for present grace, and he pleads from past mercies. This is, a, this is a pattern that we see again and again in Scripture. You don't need to turn there, but listen to Psalm 63, verses 6 through 8. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, if you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wing I will sing for joy. So the psalmist here in bed remembers how God has been his help. Consequently, verse 8, my soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. And one of the things we can do in, in our anxiety and our fear is rehearse and remember God's past faithfulness. Yes, go to God with your prayer requests. Yes, bring them before him. Yes, cry out to him. But, but, but not in desperation and fear, but in confidence that the God who has met our needs in the past will be faithful to meet our needs now. So David begins this psalm by cr- with stating his concern. Then in, in verses 2 through 5, David shifts his attention, and we see David's correction. He opens up the psalm with a volley of requests to God, and then it's as though he turns his attention to those who are responding to this same distress wrongly. David is going to correct those who, in their fear and anxiety, turn to other gods. We just read verses 2 through 5. Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Salah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. You know, times of trial and adversity test us to show what our true hopes are in and what we worship. And it's easy to say that we worship the living God while worshiping the living God brings reward in this life now. There was a time in our country where being a Christian actually brought a certain amount of cultural respect. There was a time when, when it actually benefited one to be known publicly as a Christian. Those days are soon ending. And as persecution and as sorrows come, it tests our hopes, our treasures, and our faith. 
And so whatever this calamity is, whatever this, this, this trial is, let's assume for the moment it's, it's, a, it's a famine. That'd, that'd be a good example. It might be. It, it tests what we really care about. Are we, are we worshipers of the living God? Are we worshipers of the creation? Do we worship the creator or the creation? And what David is rebuking here, and, and this term the ESV translates, oh men, is really, oh sons of men, probably a reference to noblemen's landowners or his nobles in his court. In, in light of this, whereas David's bringing his prayer to God, they are seeking after something else to deliver them. He rebukes them. He says, oh men, how long shall my, my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies to law? And what those two parallel lines do is help interpret each other. So if you ask, what does it mean that David's honor is turned into shame? Well, it's informed by the second half that they love vain words and seek after lies. I think the picture is this. While David is waiting on God, while David is bringing his prayer request to God, and we get this from a little further on as well, verse 3, he, he tells them that God does hear his prayer. God has set apart the godly for himself. These people seem to be questioning, well, maybe God isn't answering our prayers. Maybe God can't be relied upon. Where else can we turn to? Who else will give us help? Who else will give us the things we need? And so consequently, by seeking vain words and following after lies, they turn David's glory to shame. What we see then is in his rebuke, number one, our faithlessness shames God. Our faithlessness shames God. Now remember, David is rebuking the people of Israel. This isn't written to the pagans and the nations. This, this is written, this is a psalm. He's turning his attention in his life to those people who are supposed to be worshipers of God, those people who name themselves the people of God. And these people, when push comes to shove, when the going gets tough, begin to pursue other avenues of deliverance. And, and it's wonderful to me that David's first concern is for God's glory. David is, is upset because the Lord God is being shamed. You know, when, when God's people, the people who name the name of God, when, we, when we're in a tight place, turn to other sources of deliverance than God, God is, is shamed. The Apostle Paul rebukes some of the Romans in chapter 2 for this very thing. He says, it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Our faithlessness shames God. But the other thing we see from this in this rebuke is that all other promises of help are vain. And we know that because I think when people forsake God to pursue other avenues of deliverance, they certainly wouldn't identify the things they're pursuing as vain words and lies. You know, when we're in a tight spot, many things offer deliverance. Money promises you will be safe. Money promises to take care of you. Or perhaps power. Perhaps friends. Possessions. Position. All these things promise to solve our problems. You know, today there are, there, are, there are many who think if only I made a bit more money, I'd be secure. If only we could pass the right legislation, things would be better. If only the right person could get elected. If only I could, I could find a husband or a wife. If only, if only, and we, we pursue these things, things that are not wrong in and of themselves but things in which we're never to find our deliverance. In David's day, they would turn to, to the Ashtaroth and the Baals. They would, they would do the things they thought they needed to do to make it rain to give them children. And David reminds us, reminds them that whenever we do that, 
wherever we do that, however we do that, all other promises of help are vain. All other promises of help are false. There is no other deliverer. There is no other savior. There is no other God. The idols of the nations are vain. We need to be reminded of that because we're tempted at times to turn, right? When the pressure comes down upon us, we're tempted to turn somewhere else. Tempted to turn to some other form of deliverance instead of waiting on God. And then we need to remind ourselves there is no other deliverance. There is no other savior. There is no other place to turn. So first he rebukes them. But then David offers them counsel. And you'll see that he, he gives them imperative verbs. Verse 3 through 5 has a number of instructive imperative verbs. As David offers now his counsel to them, he rebukes them. How long will my honor be turned into shame? How long will you pursue after lies? But then he, he instructs them. He counsels them. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call. The first thing he tells them is they've got to be confident that God does in fact hear the faithful. Literally in the Hebrew, the Lord is to himself the godly. He set them apart. They're his special possession. He, he takes special note of them. If you're here today and you're in Christ, if you're here today and you're a believer, understand that God has set you apart. The, the foundational concept of holiness means to be set apart. And God has set apart for himself the godly. He's, he's got his eye on us. We're in, we're in a special group. Consequently, David can say confidently, the Lord hears when I call. The Lord hears when I call. David is one of that group. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Then David can say, therefore, the Lord hears when I call. Which suggests, perhaps, that these people he's rebuking have questioned that. Okay, we've cried out to God. He hasn't answered. It hasn't rained or whatever it is they need hasn't happened. Maybe we should look somewhere else. David says, no, no. Be, start with confidence that God does hear. If, if God does hear and he has set us apart and he hasn't answered yet, he has a good reason for not answering. It's not because he doesn't love us and it's not because he's taken his eye off of us and it's certainly not because he doesn't hear us. Know with certainty the Lord has indeed set apart the godly for himself. That's the first piece of instruction he gives them. Second, in verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. He says, cultivate a proper attitude of humility. Cultivate a proper attitude of humility. Now, be angry really is be agitated, be upset. And what David's saying is, if, if, you, if, if you're upset about what's going on, and you're filled with anguish and grief, if you have to be upset and angry, make sure you don't sin in doing it. Now, this is where the, one of the big contrasts is seen because he's talking to these people who are upset inwardly. They're, they're anxious, they're full of anguish, they're agitated. David's going to end this psalm with peaceful sleep. But if you find yourself, if this is where you're at, you are in anguish, you are upset about what's going on, you don't have that peace, the first instruction David says is, don't sin. Which is going to basically mean, shut your mouth and think. Ponder over these things. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. You know, if your experience right now is you are filled with anguish, you are agitated, you are upset, you are having sleepless nights, you are having a difficult time finding peace, the first thing to know is know, know that God does in fact hear his people. Know that with certainty. Second, we, we need to close our mouths. We're, we're tempted so often to complain, to, 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 to accuse God of, of unfaithfulness or injustice, and it would be far better for us to meditate on truth and think things through until our attitude shifts. That, that's, that's David's instruction 
to those who are tempted to forsake God in tough times. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. James writes something very similar in chapter one when he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So James is saying, close your mouth, be slow to speak, be quick to hear, set aside your anger, and receive God's word. You know, it's easy when we read the headlines. It's easy, very easy. When you watch some of these videos, undercover things, to get agitated, to get upset. We talked about this last week. Lord, when are you going to deal with this? When are you going to fix this? What's going on? And you see legislation that gets passed, and you can get, you can get worked up. And if that's where you're at, David's instruction is, okay, okay. First off, don't sin. It's easy to sin in that, in that attitude. It's easy to sin when you're worked up and your heart is agitated when you're angry. Second, think about truth. Receive God's word and, and close your mouth. Stop, stop talking and listen and think. And hear what God's word has to say. If you find yourself agitated and upset, as I frequently do, we, we need to hear this. And it's so easy for us to vent. The scriptures say the fool doesn't want to receive instruction, but only likes expressing his own opinion. And we can be those fools so easily. Proper, cultivate a proper attitude of humility. And finally, David says to them, after this loft, this pause, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Worship and trust him, or obey and trust him. Because it's not just sacrifices, but the right ones. Do what God has said. Worship him obediently. And trust him. He may not have answered your prayer yet. He may not have taken away the trial yet. Do what he's told you to do. Obey him. Worship him. Rightly. And trust him. That's David's counsel. If you, if you haven't figured it all out yet, if you don't know why things are going on or going on, you're in good company. Many of the psalmists don't know why. I don't know why things are going on. It's okay. God does. And David says, close your mouth. Meditate on truth, obey God, and trust him. That's, that's David's instruction. It, it's, it's simple and it's hard. You know, we want the blessings first. We so often come to God and say, God, give me the things I want, then I'll worship you. Give me the feelings that I need to love my neighbor, then I'll love my neighbor. David here says to people who are agitated and upset, who don't understand, who are sleepless, no, don't sin, ponder truth, obey God, Trust him. Just like Jesus says in John 13, 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing comes in the doing. So if, if you've allowed your own frustration, confusion, anxiety, and the things that are taking place in your life as an excuse not to obey God, well, that's not going to work out very well. Rather, the scriptures are calling us to be faithful and to trust God even in light of our own, our own anxiety, vexation, anger at what's going on around us. So we've seen David's concern, then David's correction, he corrects those who are turning from God. And then in point three, we see David's confidence. Okay, So we start off with a prayer. He launches out his prayer to God, and then he turns and he corrects those who are responding wrongly. 
He gives them instruction. Now we're going to see David's confidence. Now we're going to hopefully see how it is we can, we can have peace in the midst of trials. First thing David does is he considers two differing perspectives. He considers two different perspectives. Now look at verse 6 and 7. The contrast is the many and David. There are many who say, in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart. So there's the many and there's me. There's David's me and there's the many. Now there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So that's one. That's one. There's a contrast. That's one. In contrast to that, verse 7, David says, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So that's the contrast. Here's what they say. Here's what many say. And here's what David says. And, and what we see then is that the many desire the gifts. Many desire the gifts. You know, James tells us that one of the reasons we don't receive when we ask, one of the reasons perhaps why these people who tried calling out to God didn't get an answer, James tells us in 4, 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are many who say, who will show us some good? And it's, it's sort of as though they're saying, well, we'll turn wherever we're going to get an answer and we'll try the Lord. Lift up your face upon us, O Lord. And evidently these same people were tempted to turn to other places. And, and they, what they want is the goodies. They come to God. We, we can be tempted to come to God like a cosmic vending machine. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give gimme the better marriage. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, gimme the, the, the promotion at work. Now, we are to call out to God for the things we need. This psalm, after all, begins with David calling out for the things he needs. There's two very different ways to approach God with the things we need. We can approach God as worshipers of the creation, or we can worship God as the creator. See, the big difference between the angry and agitated nights of those who are not trusting in God as they ought in verse 4 and the peace that David expresses in verse 8 comes down to this. Whereas both of them, I think, are calling out to God for the same thing. Both of them may be calling out to God for the rain, for the crops. David is not coming to God calling out for it. With That is his ultimate value. David is not coming to God as a worshiper of the creation, but as a worshiper of the creator. So he says, there are many who say, who, who will show us some good and, and we'll turn to the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will give us this good that we need. Lift up your face upon us, O Lord. And then David's confidence in verse 7 is this, but you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and the wine abound. Now get that. What David's saying is, even before God answers his prayer, David has more joy and more confidence in his own heart now than they will have if they get what they want. Get that. You have put more joy in my heart. You've put it there. Not you will put. You've put more joy in my heart than they have. The, the many of verse 6. That's, there's the contrast. When their grain and wine abound. So at, at a rich harvest, when everything's going well, when the, when the harvest is rich, you've brought in the crops and there's excess and it's just abundant of food and wine. And the work is, is over and there's time for merriment and there's time for rejoicing. David says he has more joy in his heart now. It's, it's already been put in his heart than when they get the things they request, when they have the material blessings. That's how you can have peace in trials because your ultimate value isn't the stuff. Yes, we need food. Yes, we need shelter. Yes, we need jobs. Yes, we don't want to be sick. But undergirding all of those needs should be a joy and a confidence that cannot be shaken. 
so that if our health fails, if our work lets us go, they, they can't rob us of what we truly have. David already comes to the table richer than the many after they get what they're asking for. Do you see how that's coming from a place of, of confidence and solidity and soundness? There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when grain and wine abound. I mean, this, is, this is the trick. God knows we live in a material world. We have material needs. But we're also spiritual beings, and our spiritual needs are far more important than our material needs. And, and God promises us not an easy life, not a life free of trials, but rather he promises us in those trials and in that suffering a joy and a confidence to sustain us that comes from him. Now that, that will be meaningless to us if what we care about is the material world only. This is where what we love and what we treasure is brought to light. If you're just coming to Christ for the good life now, when you don't get the good life now, your faith will falter. If you're coming to Christ for Christ then whether life is hard or easy, you get Christ. Apostle Paul makes that clear in Philippians 3.8. He says, I count everything. Everything is loss. He's got a ledger. And on the negative side is everything because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And I plug that in. Paul is saying that the pleasures of a good meal. You could add in, I could add in, my family, my children, you all, this church, Loss, Christ, gain. See, Paul's and Paul's testimony. It's the Lord's testimony. There are those who love the gifts. There are those who love the giver. Listen to Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, God, God does appeal to our desire for joy. He knows we want joy. Desire for joy is not a bad thing. The problem is where we're going to find our joy. Where, where will we look to find our satisfaction? So this, the gospel does not call and say, come have a miserable life now so that you can have a good life later. The gospel says, come and die now in joy with with peace and confidence while you suffer and there is a reward that is inexpressible that comes later David is saying even while he's crying out for the things he needs even while he's crying out for present grace he's crying out for present grace with a joy in his heart that exceeds that of those who simply have material blessings that's the only explanation I can see for how he can say what he says in verse 8 because he's satisfied in the Lord He's satisfied in, in who he is to him. You know, we do God a great, great disservice when we chase about the creation and the things and not him. He offers us to know him. That joy that David speaks of here is a joy that we can have in knowing Christ and the gospel. God is, is pleading, we heard from Pastor Daniel two weeks ago, pleading through the gospel, through his word, to be reconciled to each and every one of you. Pleading, desiring, earnestly. He might be at peace 
that you might call him father, and he might call you son and daughter, that you might know him and he might know you. And that's on the table, and we run around concerned about little trifling things, like nations rising and falling, like economics, like disease, like things that are vapor, that disappear, when you can know the living God. You know, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of it this way. In Jeremiah 2.13, the danger of, of running around and being so distracted by material things that we, we, that we think will please us, that we ignore the eternal God at whose right hand there is joy forevermore. He says, my people have committed two evils. Two evils his people have committed them. Have committed. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What are the two evils we're tempted to commit? We forsake the source of all blessing. We were tempted to forsake the one who offers true joy, and then we run around chasing after things that promise joy that don't deliver. The, the contrast is like having an abundant living water supply and digging out a cistern. And the cistern was kind of like a hole in the ground that you'd you know, cover with mud that would dry and hopefully would catch the rainwater. And a cistern that's broken, that has a crack, all you've got is basically some mud puddles at the bottom, some damp, moist earth. And what, what God is saying is we forsake him, we forsake the, the source of all joy and blessing, and we're like people who leave that water and then cro- go over to the, this broken cistern, get down on our hands and knees, pick up a, a clump of moist dirt, and start sucking the water out of it, going, mm, mm. that's exactly what Jeremiah is accusing them of. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know, we would rather have the, the temporary and false peace, the things of this world promise us, than the joy of knowing the living God. So David considers two different perspectives, and this is really the challenge of this psalm. What do you value? What do you want? See, if what you value and what you want are things you can touch and see, then you are going to have a very unstable life. Because the things you can touch and the things you can see, they disappear. They rise, they fall, they come, they go. They can be taken in a moment. There is no guarantee if the things you can touch and the things you can see. If that's what you worship, if that's your ultimate value, you will have many sleepless nights. You will be full of anxiety and fear. But if... You are a worshiper of the living God. And you will have a joy and a stability. You will have that anchor that holds. It keeps you stable in life's storms. And that's only possible through coming to God through Jesus Christ. That's only possible that stability is, is in knowing Christ, Paul says, through the gospel. Which brings us then to this point B, David's confidence. He exalts in his security in the Lord. And if we've gone through all this, we now wind up, how, how can David, in need, David crying out, answer me, be gracious to me, hear me, how can he say, I will, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Well, it's because of what David knows that his opponents don't know. It's, it's the sum total of all of this psalm. He's going to have, point one, a peaceful sleep. Second point, he's going to have safe sleep. Yes, he can cry out to God, but he cries out with the confidence of God's past deliverance in verse 1 and the confidence 
of verse 3 that God will hear him when he calls. And he cries out to God for his needs with the confidence that he already has a treasure and a possession that cannot be taken. He already has a joy. You see, that's a different type of crying out to God. You cry out to God confident because of what he's done for you in the past. You cry out to God confident he will hear you and he set you apart. You cry out to God already with a joy that cannot be taken. And in that context, yes, we, we, we make our requests. Yes, we say, God, I need, I need a job. God, I need provision. God, I want you to heal my husband, my wife. Yes, yes, we cry out to God that way. But we do it remembering his past grace. We do it knowing with confidence that those who are his, he knows and hears. And we, we do it with a deep-seated joy that we already have. And because of that, we can then, after pouring our hearts out to God, sleep like babies. If you have needs, take them before God. Pour out your heart to the living God. Pour it out passionately. And go to sleep. Then go to sleep. Let it go. Give it over to him. This gets back to Philippians. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplications. Make your request known to God. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. And David says, I, I can, in peace... I'll both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He's got peaceful sleep, and he's got safe sleep. That's all we can do. We, we can't control the economy. We can't control this world. We can't control what's going on. We can take our requests to God. We can get down on our knees and, and pray, lay our requests out to God, and then we can let it go and go to sleep with the confidence that God has met our past needs, that God hears our prayer, the confidence that whether God says yes or no or wait, we have a joy and a treasure that cannot be taken. It, this, is, this is the way to have the calm assurance of a faithful heart, the sleep of a Christian. So, so call out to God. He, he wants you to call out to him. He wants you to call out different than those who don't know him and those who worship the creation call out to him. Not, not in desperation as though you're... you're you don't know where to turn, and if God will give me what I want, I'll go here, or if not, I'll go over here. But the confidence of God's going to hear me. God has heard me. God has delivered me. He will give me what I need in his time. He has set us apart. And even if he does not give me the things I request, he's put more joy in my heart than I could ever have through material blessings. And so we get peace. I'm going to call the worship team up as we sing our closing song, celebrating this very peace. Celebrating this very peace. Let's, let's pray while the worship team comes up. Lord God, we, we want to be like David and not like his opponents. We want to, to worship you and not the creation. And yet, Lord, we have real needs in this world. Real needs for health, for food, for shelter. Real suffering is taking place around us. There's real fear and anxiety in the world we live in. And so, Lord, we do. We do cry out, hear us and hear our prayers. Answer us. Be gracious to us. And yet, Lord, we, we do it knowing how many times before you have done this very thing. How many times before you have been gracious. You have met our needs. You have been good to us. And so we call out to you with confidence, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you've set us apart for yourself, knowing that you love us. And Lord, we, 
we, we cry out also knowing that we know you. You have already given us the greatest gift you could give. The, the greatest joy we could possess is knowing Christ. And so, Lord, we, we, we cry out in need, but we cry out in confidence. And we pray that you would guard our hearts from anxiety, guard our hearts from undue fear. We've made our request to you. Now give us peace to, to sleep and to go about our day, worshiping you, offering right sacrifices, and putting our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing.